Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Certainly, uh, certainly miss Phil when he's not here. It's a uh, hard to uh, to do the, the the worship singing that is the music and also also do the the preaching to my mind it is on the other is on on the other right it's on when I'm singing I'm thinking about preaching so thank you guys for being patient this morning well let me pray for us and this we'll get started in Ephesians uh, continue with our Ephesians introduction. Heavenly Father, we come to you again and thank you this morning again that we can be here as, as a gathered people. Father, we want to, we trust that you will be present here as we preach your word. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would, we know that you promised that the, your word will not return void. Lord, I pray that it would do the work that you would have it do this morning. Lord, we trust in you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week we began our study of Ephesians by looking at the first of three mysteries revealed in Scripture. Now, we defined mystery in Scripture as something that has been veiled to be revealed by later revelation. We started last week by looking at the mystery of God's redemptive plan. So I want to read uh, really quickly here. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, just really the first couple of verses as we get started. The title in my Bible says, The Blessings of Redemption, and I think you'll see uh, why it's titled that as we go along. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I'll go ahead and read through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us and Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to the kind intention which purpose in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we were the first to hope Christ would be, would be to the praise of His glory." In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise 
of His glory. Now we started last week by looking at the first point, that uh, first mystery that is, of God's redemptive plan. Uh, I'm sorry, first mystery, which is God's, the mystery of God's redemptive plan. Now, redemption can be defined as buying something back. In biblical times, it referred to the payment of a price to the owner of a slave in order to give his slave, the slave, his or her freedom. The concept of redemption is prominent in the New Testament, and we see it here in Ephesians chapter 1. Through His blood, through Christ's blood, Christians are redeemed from the curse of the law and released from slavery to the law and the power of sin. Now let me illustrate the idea of, of redemption. A pastor once met a young boy in front of, of the sanctuary carrying a rusty cage with several, several birds. The pastor inquired, Son, where did you get those birds? I trapped them in, out in the field, the boy replied. What are you going to do with them? I'm going to play with them, and then I guess I'll just feed them to that old cat we have at home. When the pastor offered to buy them, the boy, the boy exclaimed, Mister, you don't want these old birds. They're just old, wild birds and can't sing very well. Okay, it's a deal, but you're making a bad, bad bargain. So the exchange was made, and the boy went away, whistling and happy with his shiny coins. The pastor walked around to the back of the church property and opened the door to the small wire cage and let the, the birds go, let them soar into the blue sky. The next Sunday, he took the empty cage into the pulpit and he used it to illustrate Christ coming to say, seek and save those who, like the birds, were destined to destruction. The difference is that the pastor paid a few coins for these birds. But our Lord Jesus paid with His entire life, paid with His life. He went to the cross and He died for our sins to buy us back. John Walbert says this, the work of redemption was accomplished by Christ in His death on the cross and has in view the payment of the price demanded by a holy God for the deliverance of the believer from the bondage and burden of sin. In redemption, the sinner is set free from his condemnation and slavery to sin, end quote. Now, it must be said, there's a theory out there, the, the ransom theory, that says that God paid a ransom to Satan. He didn't pay a ransom to Satan. He paid a ransom to himself. He satisfies our debts which we could never repay on our own. God's plan for redemption started in the garden. When Adam fell in the garden, he plunged the entire human race into sin and slavery to sin. Now, we need to be clear then that sin is a worldwide problem that affects every human who has ever lived or who ever will live. Paul affirmed this truth in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, <clears throat> excuse me, he stated that death came to all men because of the actions of one man, Adam. Therefore, God's redemption of mankind, this is the point, God's redemption of mankind must include a plan for all of mankind. In other words, God intends to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And if sin, then, is a worldwide problem, then there must be a worldwide solution. Last week, 
we work through our Lord's use of of Israel and His plan of, of redemption. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abram, and by extension Israel, a land. He promised them seed and He promised them a blessing. And in Genesis 12 too, He says this, and this is important that we understand. He says this, and He told them that they would be a blessing. He told them they'd be a blessing to all the families of the earth, meaning that Abraham's uh, Abraham's uh, progeny would be a blessing to all the earth, to all the families of the earth. Therefore, we must gra- grasp then the worldwide nature of God's blessings, or God's blessing. In, in other words, He intend- intended to bless all the nations, both Jew and Gentile, through the nation which was born out of Abraham. God intended then for Israel to be a light to the nations, but they failed to do so. The the book of Jonah, if you remember the story of Jonah, exemplifies this, this failure. You may recall that God sent Jonah to the Ninevites to preach judgment against that city. But Jonah ran the opposite direction to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord in, in a completely opposite direction, as I said. You may remember, though, that he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew what God would do if he, if he did go and preach to Nineveh. And in Jonah 4-2, he says this. He, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you... Now, stop right there. This is what I want you to hear. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant and loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knew, Jonah knew that God would repent, or relent, that is, if Nineveh repented. Now that last phrase may remind you of what God said to Moses in Exodus 34. He said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We serve a God, beloved, who is full of grace and truth. John picks up on that in John chapter 1. When he says that the, the, the word, the Lord Jesus came and dwelt among us, but he is full of grace and truth. There's no doubt that Jonah knew that God would relent if the Ninevites repented because God had revealed his loving kindness to Israel. He had revealed his patience to Israel. And Jonah knew that if he print, if, if they repented, if the Ninevites, the Ninevites repented, that God would relent. By the way, that that Exodus 34 passage is the most repeated refrain in the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over and over that God is a God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And if we study the prophets closely, we will find that Israel had been warned that God's judgment was coming upon them because of their disobedience. They attested God's patience. Jonah was upset that God would save the wicked Gentile Ninevites, yet was about to judge his own people. Think about that. 
That's why, that's why Jonah was upset. That's why he took off the other direction. That's why he tried to avoid it in the, in the first place is because he knew judgment was coming on his own people. In other words, he knew that his own people would not repent. Therefore, he knew that God would judge them just as he had promised. Israel lived in willful disobedience to God and they suffered the consequences. Moses had warned them, of, warned them, in a message, in a message that's recorded in Deuteronomy 28, he, rem, he had warned them of this very thing as they stood on, on the precipice of going into the promised land. Moses said that in Deuteronomy 28, if you want to turn there, Moses said in 28.1, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. In verses 3 through 6, he gave them a myriad of ways God would bless them if they obeyed. In 28.7, if I want to draw your attention there, he says this, The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. So God had, had promised victory. He had promised that He would bless them and promise victory if they just obeyed. And God did as He promised. Every time they walked in obedience, God would drive their enemies from before them. He did this even when they had superior weaponry. He did this, He did this no matter who was before them. No matter how high the walls were, the walls of Jericho did what? They fell. Not because of what Joshua did, but because of God. And God, God is the one who brought them down. But on the other side of the coin in, in Deuteronomy 28, he says, God says He will curse them if they disobeyed His word. And look at verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And in verses 16 through 19, Moses proclaimed the myriad of ways. He, he had already said, here's the ways I'll bless, that God will bless you if you obey. He, in 16 through 19, now he says, this is all the ways that God will curse you if you disobey. In verse 20, if you look at verse 20, it says, the Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do. God promised that he would send uh, these curses and confusion and rebuke, which is exactly the opposite of what he promised for obedience. This discipline would cause them to follow their enemies. Again, God did as He promised. When they, every time they walked into disobedience, God would drive them to their knees before their enemies. This pattern is exemplified in the book of Judges. Some of you are reading through Judges right now in our Bible reading plan that we're undertaking as a church. Now you can glance through verses 21 through 35, but I want you to look at Deuteronomy 28, 36 says that the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. Now what does this sound like to you? This is exile, right? They would still be a nation, but they would exist under the power of another nation. In verse 41, he says this, You shall have sons and daughters, and they but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. That 
should remind you, if, if, if you've read the story of Daniel, should remind you of, of Daniel and Daniel 1, where the king of Babylon brought all the youths of Israel, not all of them, but the choice youths of Israel, the good-looking and intelligent ones, to serve on the king's court. So he took the, 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 the youth of Israel and had them serve him. Moses prophesied that, that Israel would go into exile and serve other nations because of their willful disobedience. They would fail, this is the point, they would fail in doing what God had planned in His plan of redemption. It's what we're going over, the mystery of God's redemptive plan. Israel would fail, but this would not catch God by surprise, nor would it thwart God's plan. That's what we need to understand. God knew this would happen, and He knew that one day He would fully restore them in the land He had promised. Look at Deuteronomy 30, if you don't believe me. Look at Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be, verse 1, So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, so both the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, you shall call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return, and you what? and you return to the Lord, your God, and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you, you and your sons, in chapter 30, verse 3, then the Lord, your God, will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So we see there that... that that even though they disobeyed, even though they would experience the curses, that God will bring them back and He will restore them. If you want to turn quickly to Hosea 3, turn quickly to Hosea 3, it says, this of Israel, starting in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I brought her for my, bought her, that is, for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half barley, half a barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so also so I, I will also be, be toward you. For the sons of Israel will, will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, or, and without ephod, and, or, that is, or household idols. Now, look at verse 5, Hosea 3.5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in what? In the last days. So God will restore Israel. God will restore Israel, and I believe it will be in the millennial kingdom. But in the meantime, the question is, what happens with God's redemptive plan? How does God carry this out? They'd be cut off, but there'll be one day that they'll be restored. But what happens in the meantime? Now, we would be wrong-headed to think that Israel would suffer the promised curses and not enjoy the promised blessings. And I would submit to you that, that Israel has never seen 
the the blessings that that has been that God talks about in the passages that we have gone over. They have they've been blessed at, at times for sure, but I'm talking the full blessings of everything that God has promised. Now Israel's rejection of the Messiah came to a head during Jesus's earthly ministry. If you turn to Matthew twelve twenty two. Matthew 12:22 we pick up with Jesus healing a blind man which amazed the crowd making them wonder aloud if Jesus was the son of David the Messiah Look at verse 24 it Says but when the Pharisees heard this they said this man who's this man this man Jesus cast out demons only by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons Now Jesus goes on and proves to them that he could not be in league with Satan and the demons. It was impossible. His teaching, his teaching and his works prove that he is from God. That his teaching and the wisdom that he teaches with, the authority that he teaches with, could only come from God. And the miracles prove that he is from God. If you look at Matthew 12.31 though, says this, Therefore I say to you, any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This is what we call the unpardonable sin. Now some people worry, have I ever committed the unpardonable sin? Well, I would submit to you that that when Jesus is speaking, the sin that Jesus is speaking of was committed when the Pharisees witnessed Jesus' miracles and His teaching, which He performed by the Holy Spirit, and they attributed them to the demons. That is the unpardonable sin. They continually attributed Jesus' teaching to and His miracles to the work of demons. They rejected Him. They rejected Him. They rejected their Messiah. And from this point in Jesus' ministry, He began to withdraw from the crowds. He began to concentrate on preparing His closest disciples and teaching them in parables so that only they would understand Him. In Matthew 13, look at Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came and said to Him, Why do you speak in, to them in parables? And Jesus answered them and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So they rejected their Messiah, and He's saying, Look, I am teaching my men, my disciples (coughs) of the kingdom of heaven, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and and he will have an abundance but whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, verse 13, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. So Israel has rejected the Messiah. 
has rejected the Messiah. Now, as I've said, God has a plan for Israel in the future, but the question that we have to answer and why this is so important is what, how does God work His redemptive plan in the meantime? And this brings us to our second mystery. The mystery of God's redeemed people. The mystery of God's redeemed people. It's, it's at this point in Jesus' ministry that He began to reveal the cross and His promise to build His church. He does that in Matthew 16. We saw that last week. And in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, He gave the mandate to His church to make disciples of the nations. Now, we must realize, must recognize that prior to Matthew 16, the church had not been revealed. Now, as we've seen, Israel has been temporarily cut off. So how would God move forward in His plan of redemption? Remember, He has promised to redeem the entire human race, including Jews and Gentiles. Now, because of the rejection of His people, it seems like that His plan has been thwarted. You can even say thwarted by Satan. The Jews have rejected their Messiah. They, they have sent Him to the cross and He's died a horrible death. There seems to be, for, for all that there is, there seems to be no path forward. His intent was to redeem people through Israel, right? That is, that is except for the promise that he made before his death to build his church. Now you may recall from your studies that in Jeremiah 31, God promised a new covenant. If you turn there to Jeremiah 31... Look at verse 31. <clears throat> Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Let's stop there. Who is God making this new covenant with? Israel and the house of Judah, right? This goes back to what we've been saying. God is not done with His people. He says He'll put His law within them, and on their heart He will write it, and He will be their God, and they shall be My people. What shall they be? My people. He's not done with them. Look at verse 34. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, do you think that's happened? No, that hasn't happened. He says they will know Him. He will forgive, they will all know Him. He will forgive their iniquity and He will remember their iniquity no more. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 11, where he says that all Israel will be saved as the, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
Jesus, Jesus picks up on this new covenant language in Luke 22 at the Lord's table, at the Last Supper. If you turn to Luke 22, well, you don't have to, it's just a quick verse. 22.20, it says, In the same way He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. So in Jeremiah, God had promised a new covenant with a spiritual divine dynamic by which those who know Him would participate in the blessings of salvation. And Jesus inaugurated this new covenant at the last Passover prior to His death on the cross. Now, I would say that His death on the cross ratified the covenant, right? Because the shedding of blood. So He promised this covenant. He said, this is the new covenant. The the cup symbolizes the new covenant. We're going to... we're going to have communion in a, in a few minutes, but so it's, this is this makes this is a well, I forget the word I'm, I'm after, but it it's good that we're going through this. He inaugurated, but he he inaugurated this new covenant at the last Passover, but he ratified it at the cross. His promise was completely fulfilled then at the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit at, at the day of Pentecost. He sent the Holy Spirit, and this this was fully realized, this new covenant. So so with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the spiritual aspects of the new covenant begin to be exercised for what? For Jewish and Gentile believers in the church era. And Jesus Himself became the mediator of this new covenant. Now, this this is important. And through it, He empowers, spiritually empowers His people to serve Him. Listen to the, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13.20. says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Christ is now working in us, His church, to do His will so that we would do what is pleasing in His sight. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, when he tells the church, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. In other words, He has brought forth a remnant to serve Him according to His gracious church. Beloved, this is the church. This is the church that has been spiritually empowered. This is the body of Christ. This is God's redeemed people in this age, the church age. He has shown mercy on us in using us to preach the good news of Christ to the ends of the world. The ends of the earth. Picking up on the language of Acts chapter 1. Listen to Paul in Romans 11.30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So who's disobedience? So you, he says you, Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, the Jews. That because of, 
of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. So, so God is going to show mercy to them just like He showed, has shown mercy to the Gentiles. Verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to what? To all. So, then Paul burst into praise in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable is his, are His ways. <clears throat> God is merciful, beloved, to not only save us, but to use us for His purposes and His glory despite our former disobedience. When God places you into His body, the church, He redeems you and He makes you part of His redemptive plan. Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says that we, uh, he, he, he has given us a message of reconciliation. He uses you. He makes you a new creation, a new man. Now, you may ask, I've, I feel like I've turned on the water hose, or the fire hose. You may ask, what does this have to do with Ephesians? This is Ephesians intro, right? Let me try to tie all this together for you. First off, let me reiterate and make it clear that Ephesians is a book about the church. You could say that Ephesians is God's blueprint for the church. Or the church and God's redemptive plan would be another theme that you could use. Now, it should not come as any surprise that I would choose Ephesians as our second book of study. Because I believe that there's an incredible amount of confusion in the world today concerning the nature and purpose of the church. I, I believe that there's much confusion even, even in the midst of us. I, as you know, I preached sermon after sermon on the church in the past couple of years. As you most of you would attest, this, this journey that we've been on to learn about the church has been a long and hard-fought journey, but we're not done yet. We're gonna, we're gonna go even further as we look at, at Ephesians. Now, as you know, I've chosen to name the series of this series, The Church, A Mystery Revealed. Now, let me, let me show you why I did this. Turn to Ephesians 3. This is where I hope to, to tie it all together. Look at Ephesians 3, 1. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is in other generations, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Look at verse 6, Ephesians 3, 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So what is the mystery then? What is this mystery that 
that Paul is talking about. The mystery is that the Gentiles and the Jews would be made into one new man. They would be fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the Gospel. Now, it's hard for us to, to completely fathom the importance of this revelation. Therefore, we needed to comprehend the big picture of God's redemption to understand where we fit into that picture and why our participation is so glorious. Ephesians is a book about the church, it's not, and it's not just about our salvation. It's a book about what God is doing with His redeemed people in this age, the church age. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3.7, uh, 3.8, To me, the very least of the apostles, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the, of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold of wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I believe that in Ephesians then, that Paul drives home the importance of the church in God's plan. And in 3.10, we see that God uses the church to make known His wisdom, His wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, let me just say this. Genesis chapter 3, we saw it last week. Genesis chapter 3 was primarily a satanic revolt against God. Sin infiltrated the world by one man's act, and we see the effect of that sin in the physical world. And Paul says as much in Romans 8 that creation groans. But first and foremost, we need to understand the cosmic nature of this rebellion. It involves the angelic realm, the angels and demons, the principalities and powers of the cosmic realm. As such, Genesis 3.15 was a declaration of war by God on Satan and his followers. Now this is where we, we fit in. It's where we fit in. We play a role on this cosmic battlefield. We may not completely see this role because it's a spiritual battle. We may be insignificant in the eyes of the world, but we have a supernatural impact on this spiritual battlefield. As such, the church is a victory flag that has been planted. The church here in Gainesville, this particular church, is a victory flag here in Gainesville which declares God's victory over Satan. We are a statement of Picking up on the language in Ephesians 3, we are a statement of the manifold witness of God and we make this wisdom known to the rulers and authorities. I hope you see how important that is. Through the new covenant, beloved, Christ inaugurated which Christ inaugurated and mediates, He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you gifts of the Holy Spirit so that you can supernaturally serve the body of Christ. Let me make sure you understand that. Why do you think you've been given these gifts of the Holy Spirit? It's so that you can be a statement of Christ's victory. 
in the supernatural realm. It's because they are supernatural gifts that they are a statement of Christ's victory. You've been given these gifts and you've been placed in the body of Christ to serve Him and they make a statement to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. This is what Ephesians is all about. See, we see the church in in physical form. We see the church in how it's put together here. We're a ragtag bunch of people. We're a ragtag bunch of people, but I'm telling you that God has given us supernatural gifts so that we would use them to be a statement to the angelic realm. That's what Ephesians is all about. Therefore, we're taking the time to study this book. Now quickly, as we start to wrap up, let me give you a few goals for our study in Ephesians. First, I pray that you and I, that we will become or come to better understand what Christ has accomplished in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Beloved, I think sometimes we can make the Bible about us. But it is primarily about God and His glory and the redemption of mankind. This truth is amazing. Because as individuals, we get to participate in God's plan. We who were disobedient have been shown mercy. And not only have we been shown mercy, but we've been made part of His redemptive plan. Again, if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. Christ has come to abolish all rule and all authority and power, including the power of death. And He will put all things in subjection under His feet. 1 Corinthians 15.28 is what, this is what Paul says, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God the Father will be all in all. So this is all about God's glory. It's all about all things being subjected to God. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that plan. Number two, I pray that you will gain a better insight into the supernatural nature of the church's role in God's redemptive plan. I keep driving that nail home. Many times we reduce the church to to what we can see. Many times we reduce the church to just the community. And for certain, we are a community. But we are much greater than that. We are the body of Christ, which is a, which is a metaphor for the gathering of the saints, but it's much more than just a metaphor. It speaks of our supernatural unity. Why do you think God puts Christ's us gifts and places us into the church? It's not by happenstance. We, we've been given gifts in order to serve Him so that we can be a part of His body to do His work on this earth now in this church age. And this work, beloved, is accomplished by Christ, not men. It's accomplished through men and women serving supernaturally. A.W. Tozer says this, 
100 religious persons knit together, knit into a unity by careful organizations do not, organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. End quote. <clears throat> Look, I can put it all together myself. I can say, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you. But in reality, God is the one, Christ is the one who's putting this all together. He's the one who's brought the body of Christ together. As such, we are a representation of Christ on the earth. That's What do you think that the, the metaphor body of Christ is? We are His representation here on earth. Therefore, we are His supernatural body, which He uses to accomplish His work. This church, GBC Gainesville, represents Christ here on earth and here in Gainesville. As part of this church, if you are here, if you're part of this church, you represent Christ here on earth. If you're part of the universal church, if you're part of the church in Gainesville, uh, Grace Bible Church of Gainesville, then you represent Christ from this, from this body. And this little old church, planted two years ago, barely making it sometimes, makes known the manifold wisdom of God. Your being here at this time and place is no mistake. This church and everyone in it have been placed here for God's purposes and for His glory. Number three, I pray that you will better, that we will better, gain a better understanding of the role of the church in our lives. This ties back to the second goal. I want you to see that when you're part of the body of Christ, the church becomes your central focus. Mark, Mark Dever says this, when a person becomes a Christian, he doesn't just join a local church because it is a good habit for growing in spiritual maturity. Now that's true, it, it is true, but it's not just that. He joins the local church because it's the expression of what Christ has made him a member of the body of Christ, end quote. You might say, what makes this different than a cult? Well, the difference is that Christ has placed you into His body. He has done this. And there's a worldwide aspect to this. There's, a, there's the local church, which is a manifestation of the universal church, but He has made you part of the universal church and He's placed you into the local church to serve the local church. As such, we're not the only game in town. Christ is working through His church. The cults are the cults because they're man's counterfeit of the church. They are man's attempt at replicating what Christ is accomplishing in His church. Why do you think the Mormons call their organization the Church of Jesus Christ? They are trying to replicate Christ's work in the true church, church of Jesus Christ. You get the point. They're trying to, they're trying to replicate it in man's way, but only Christ can do this. That's why this is not a cult, because Christ is the one doing the work. He's the one placing you here. Four. I pray this series will supercharge your service to Jesus Christ and His church. I hope the study of Ephesians will help you see the supernatural nature of your gifts. Therefore, I hope you will see the supernatural nature of your service to the body of Christ. I know the road gets difficult. I, it's, I travel the same roads, beloved. 
but we are saved to serve. Johnny Erickson Tata says this, However tiring our work may be, how could it be ever be tiresome? How could it be anything less than a joy to serve the One who has given us all things for life and enrichment and enjoyment? Jesus, who suffered so much to secure our salvation. When, end quote, when you were saved, you were given a role to fulfill. We see this with the saints of old, right? Noah, Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Joshua, David, Paul, so forth and so on, Peter, they all had a role to fulfill. We see this. We don't question it in their lives, right? Your role, beloved, may not be as prominent as other saints, but you have been given a role to play. I'm reminded of the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. During a snowstorm, he turned aside and went into a little church for the morning service. There were no more than a dozen or so people there. Even even the minister had failed to show up that day. So Charles Spurgeon was in the wrong church at with the wrong congregation, the wrong weather, and the wrong preacher. And during the service, a thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor, climbed into the pulpit. Not even the right guy. He announced his text as Isaiah 45.22, and it says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. And he continued to say that over and over because he didn't have anything else to say. He just stayed there. Spurgeon says of this, He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text, end quote. The point is, I want you to ponder, is the impact that this man who, who was willing to serve and he was faithful to serve in preaching the gospel, even though he was not gifted to do so at, in terms of what he was doing, he served and God used him to save Charles Spurgeon. How might God use you if you understand the supernatural nature of your gifts. Number five, I pray this series will help you understand why we suffer on the behalf of Christ in His church. Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.24, I, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul understood the need for suffering as he represented the body of Christ. Listen to this by Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. We want to avoid suffering, death, sin, ashes, but we live in a world crushed and broken and torn, a world God Himself visited to redeem. We receive His poured out life and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with Him may then pour ourselves out for others. Beloved, He has put you, made you a part of the church. And there are going to be times that you're going to suffer for that. There's going to be times you're going to suffer persecution. There are going to be times you're going to suffer wants because of your being a part of the church. But it is a wonderful, wonderful gift to serve Him in this way, to serve Him as He redeems the nation so that He may get what? The glory. I pray that as we preach this series on Ephesians, and we'll get started next time, 
I pray as we go through this series in Ephesians that we will gain all these things and more. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again. I know that pray that I have helped people see the importance of the church. Lord, we see this physical church and we think one thing of it. Lord, You have made this the body of Christ. You have placed us here, our Lord, to do Your work here in this church age to go and take the gospel to the nations, to proclaim Your name to the end of the earth. Father, I pray that we would be found faithful in doing so. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, at the beginning of the sermon, we looked at the idea of redemption. We said that you were a slave to sin and estranged from God. But He showed mercy toward us. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have turned to Him in saving faith, if you have believed in His sacrifice on the cross, He has shown mercy towards you. He has shown mercy toward you in saving you. In Colossians 1.19, Paul writes, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Listen to this, verse 21. Although you, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In Colossians 2, and verse 13, says, When you were dead in your transgressions and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Beloved, your sins, your transgressions, they, they, there was a certificate of debt. A debt you could never repay. It was a decree against you. He was hostile. Through His death on the cross, Paul says that that decree, those decrees have been taken out of the way. They have been nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross. And when He disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Beloved, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, has, is victorious. 
He has conquered sin and death. And because of what He has done, we can be saved. Beloved, if you're honest with yourself, you can look at your life and join with Paul and say you were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God, Christ, has made you alive together with Him. But if you're also honest, you realize that we still have this flesh that we battle against. So I want you to take some time and I want you to meditate on what Christ has done in taking away your sin. Past, present, and future. Past, present, and future.